What is it to speak? What is it to speak the gospel? This word that literally means good news. It was core to the ministry of Jesus. Words that he inaugurated his ministry with at the beginning of uh, Matthew, Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. He says, I have come to declare the good news of the kingdom of God with his opening lines. And we proceed to see him do this, not just through word, but through action and touch and tears and healings and presence to every type of person imaginable. In fact, the story of scripture is that God became flesh because words alone would never suffice in carrying the full measure of his message to us. So likewise, we speak. This is our heritage. This is our legacy that we plant our flag in that God, you, that God went beyond words for us. And so we therefore get to speak on his behalf. Between now and March 5th, this is what we're calling uh, Missions Focus Month, month, with our annual Mission Sunday happening March 5th. We'll kind of climax to that day with this series. Our January series, as you've heard, was entitled, We Believe, based on Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4.13, where he said, in the spirit of King David, we believe, therefore we speak. And now this series entitled, We Speak, carrying us into the ways that, that we now speak God's message of hope into the world around us because of what we believe. You'll find booklets in your chairs this morning. Maybe you already thumbed through them. Feel free if you need to be distracted from what I'm saying. You know, that gives you something to do. Uh, you see these come out uh, uh, this, this time, around this time every year. And uh, just an opportunity to become a little bit more familiar with our missions partnerships around the world. Very announced in recent weeks, and hopefully you've received maybe a letter in the mail, maybe an email that detailed some of our giving. Our goal this year is $175,000. That's a lot. Last year we gave just shy of that, which is incredible. Uh, but you can turn to the last page in your booklets. You can look on the screen. Print's pretty small up there. But you're going to see places. You're going to see people. Uh, you're going to see uh, different specific projects that fall under some of these uh, partnership uh, geographic areas that we have. But one thing we would just always want to remind you of, if, you, if you're a regular, uh, you, you probably know this, we pass the trays every week. Our regular operating budget supports our, uh, our, our core operating dollars that keep our people on the field in Hungary, North Africa, Tanzania, and Kenya. These funds go above and beyond to help them with tangible projects, uh, with uh, some, some support uh, staff in places, um, natives and locals that are picking up this mantle and carrying it into the future. We're going to have Jim Beck uh, share on Mission Sunday a little bit more about what that looks like as they train the next generation up. But if you have any questions whatsoever on these, uh, please feel free to grab us and we'll share a little bit more about that. We have a missions committee that oversees these dollars. Uh, Barry, uh, myself, Charles Lindsay chairs that committee. Grab, grab any of us for more info. But we want to say at the beginning of this focus month, this series, We Speak, is not remotely detached from what we're doing out in the world. Something that I hope you've heard us hear over the years that we like to say, God's mission is not just over there. The mission is what God does everywhere. That includes in our own backyards, uh, with our neighbors, and our own homes. 
It's the same mission in different contexts. Uh, scripture Barry is uh, very, uh, you know, appreciates uh, that I do as well. We're going to share in uh, right now. What exactly is that mission? Paul says this to the sec- in Second Corinthians. He says all this is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This world that is broken and fractured and separate and isolated horizontally like one to another, but vertically us from God. God is bringing that together. He has done that. He is doing it. He will do it through Jesus Christ, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and that he is committed to us, the message of reconciliation. We get to speak this message of reconciliation. And he ends by saying, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Isn't that something? Does that make you feel small? Does it make you feel empowered or something in between? Or maybe it depends on the day. But as we begin today, I want us to consider for a moment some of the ways this appeal has been spoken to the world over the past 2,000 years. Very broad brush, but let's consider. In the fall, in their Bible classes, we studied the early church and how they didn't actively recruit disciples. They didn't even evangelize in public places. Their situation didn't really allow them to do that, but rather people were drawn to their radically different lives of hope and their commitment to things unseen. Kind of late that period and thereafter till maybe 500 AD, you had a group called the Desert Fathers who, who pulled away from the world, went to the desert in order to purify their minds and their hearts and people were drawn to them as teachers and they shared and spoke the word of God and started movements and changed people's hearts. From about 500 AD to 1500 AD, you had this strange era where the political class had come to dominate much of the church. So the simple faith of Jesus and the gospels was in some ways compromised. And instead of people being brought to faith as individuals, you would have kings and sovereigns bring groups of people to faith. And the fruit probably looked different in, 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 in that way. You could call this evangelism, but often it was really just political in many times. Eventually, by the Crusades, this became what I've heard called evangelism by terrorism in the 12th and 13th centuries. But at the same time, not too far away in Italy and in many other places, but in Italy, a man named St. Francis had begun to plant a different kind of seeds. His evangelism believed evangelism by power actually emptied the cross of its power. And simple movements like his and many others over the next several hundred years began to change the world's heart, turn the world to God from the bottom up instead of the top down, not by pressure or by edict, but by living a faithful presence to God and neighbor, being in proximity to one another. Fast forward to the 1800s, there emerged countless, what we now know as missionary societies. These would commission uh, the brave, the few, uh, to pack their belongings in coffins, sail to faraway places with no intent to return. Some people traveled on ships commissioned by kings, and that looked different than packing your belongings in a coffin. Different motivations, these exotic missions 
was a mixed bag of motives. And then to our own backyard, we've seen revivals in churchyards. In fact, it, it struck me during early service, our, our own heritage was born out of Cane Ridge Revival in Kentucky in 1801, uh, that there was this awakening and people believed the message and that the world, you know, needs to fall on their knees uh, to something bigger than itself. So revivals became a thing. We've seen pamphlets. We've seen brochures. We've heard the term friendship evangelism. We've seen and see uh, media content being created to speak into the world. And one of our missions partnerships in Hungary is doing exactly that with the entire continent of Europe in view. Uh, in the last 18 months, they've already planted um, teams in, uh, in, I believe, seven or nine countries to get the word out in the places people exist and then connect them to local disciples and connect them to the church. All of these trying to speak. Which way is right? What's the right way to speak? And I would suggest whether we're looking a thousand years ago or yesterday, we should always ask, is Jesus being represented and is there fruit? What's the nature of that fruit? Does it last? Or is it the latest trend that seemed good, but you look up years or a generation later and, and nothing is there? When we look at the history of Christian evangelism, we find a head-spinningly mixed bag, some with beautiful outcomes, others extremely destructive. And there's books and tomes written on this. We could discuss this, we could critique it, till we're blue in the face. But it strikes me today that the reality is the only thing we are in control of is what we speak. What are you speaking? What are you going to speak today? What has your life been speaking? What is the fruit that has come of that? Is my voice bringing heaven to earth or not? Am I speaking a better word than the world speaks? Better than the hurt, the anger, the retribution, the lack of forgiveness, the fear? Is my life singing a better song, one of peace and forgiveness and patience and hope? What are you speaking? And is there fruit? I think we're kind of like radio towers. All of us, to a person, and collectively, but to a person, we're constantly broadcasting something. What are we broadcasting? Are we playing the talk show host of our own airwaves, so to speak? Or are we giving our airwaves to God's? Are we emptying ourselves to give our airwaves to God? Uh, as Paul in Romans 12 says, are we offering our bodies as living sacrifices, not just our mouths, but our bodies? And at times, at least I'm inclined to, uh, to think, well, we're the talk show host that I can change the world through my words alone. But we're forgetting that it's the word of God that is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Aaron is not living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The writer of Hebrews also does not say the church is sharper than any double-edged sword. Maybe it's closer to the truth. Maybe it's not. It certainly hasn't been in all of history. God's word itself is sharper than any double-edged sword. It convicts. It encourages. It counsels. It restores. And for years, I've loved the text Isaiah 55, 11, 
says, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty handed, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. It will not return to me empty handed. That brings me so much peace. I can't tell you. For years, it's brought me so much peace. I trust that when I do speak, that when we speak, we can be at peace, that it's not our power. It's not our delivery. It's not anything about us. It's the Spirit of God that in his own time, not Aaron's timeline, that will reach the heart, that will touch the heart when each of us are ready to hear that. I can be patient. I love this. We've said, again, we've, we've said a lot. It's not about your ability, but your availability. It's not my words. It's God's. If you think you need the perfect words or the perfect appeal, Paul makes you feel better a few times uh, throughout his letters. In 1 Corinthians, he's writing to the Corinthian church after a, a visit where he apparently thought his words uh, were weak, at least by human standards. But he trusts that it didn't matter. Because, and indeed, as we get the privilege of looking back, that it accomplished what it was intended to accomplish. So join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And if you'd like, this afternoon, I'd encourage you to start from the beginning of the book, but we're going to jump into chapter 2, verse 1. He says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message, his words, and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. I wonder what that looked like. I'm inclined to think it was something exotic or miraculous. But what if the Spirit also demonstrated itself with unseen things? Our hearts knew, our souls knew. So that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. If you have ears to hear, right? Not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. Reminds me of the prologue of John. The darkness has not understood the light. For if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. However, some of my favorite words written in all of scripture, it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things, of God, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The tense, verb tense of that revelation changes everything. These are not the things God will reveal to us by his spirit. God has revealed them to us by his spirit. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived. What does that mean? At the very least, it means that Paul clearly recognizes such mysteries cannot be contained in words alone. It's not that we don't give it our best effort at times, but at other times, we, like Jesus, the legacy of Jesus, we carry this message around in jars of clay, in these human bodies, in these limited minds, not just with words, but with action, with touch, with tears, with healing, with presence. We are the aroma of Christ, Paul calls us. We are like yeast added to dough, Jesus 
says in Matthew 13, causing it to rise, though we don't know how. We're the farmer who scatters good seed, who gets to go sleep and he wakes up and it has grown first the stalk, then the head, then the fruit. And he doesn't know how, but he was faithful to scatter the seed into water. Many of Jesus' teachings and parables point to the fact that we frankly have no idea of the specific words or actions that will produce life, that will bring heaven to earth where we are, but that somehow our lives, when we are seeking the light ourselves, we become light. We broadcast light. I love this little uh, statement that Paul makes in Ephesians 5, everything that is illuminated becomes a light. He's talking about us. Jesus says, a tree is recognized by its fruit. All these treasures that you've been collecting, whether that's for weeks or your entire life, these treasures of heaven that you've been collecting, they'll come out. They are coming out. They're being put on display. Not always with eloquent words. Apparently that doesn't matter. But nonetheless, putting the Spirit's power on display. We speak whatever we seek. You will always speak what you seek. It can't be otherwise. Back in the 90s, uh, there began a series of these bizarre experiments, uh, first conducted by a Japanese scientist, where he wondered if nature, just nature, was ever influenced by us and our positive and negative feelings, by our love, by our hate. Western scientists would never do this. So we had the extremely odd idea, odd to us, of taking three jars of water, labeling one love, not labeling the second, neutral, and labeling the third one hate. And then he spent several days speaking words of love and affirmation to the love jar, ignoring the middle jar, speaking hateful words, uh, condemning words to this jar, and then he froze the water this is what he thought, and he put it under a microscope to see if there was any difference in just the, the molecular organization of this water. And no matter how many times he did this, there was a, a strong statistical tendency for the loved water to uh, organize itself in these beautiful geometric symmetrical patterns, looks like snowflakes, and always for the hated water to be disorganized, disordered, and even ugly. Other experiments in the last 30 years have been conducted with other, uh, you know, natural materials, plants, and similar results. And maybe you've, if you're a gardener, you've heard, hey, talk to your plants. And maybe you felt stupid, but you did it anyway. Maybe you should keep it up because the loved plants tended to be stronger, taller. The hated plants were smaller, weaker, and, uh, and uh, sometimes sickly. I heard this eight years ago. I've looked at it a few times. I am still baffled as to, I don't know. I don't know. Take this, take this as you will. But it's not out of the realm of belief for me. Because don't we believe that all of creation belongs to God? I once heard somebody say, if God stopped loving me into this chair, I would cease to exist. If God's love stopped filling every molecule of this universe, it would cease to exist. Doesn't creation Aren't they aware 
of the glory of God to some extent. I'm reminded of Romans 8, 22. Paul says, for I know that the whole creation groans as in the pains of childbirth together up until now. All of creation is longing for redemption. It's not just us. So point being, whether or not that's, you know, that's, that's a thing, our words undoubtedly have a power that we, we don't give it credit for. Too often, we have no idea the power of our words. We've been given a voice. Maybe you've heard, maybe you heard this sermon title, We Speak. Maybe you came in today and you saw We Speak and your immediate thought was, that's not me. I can't speak. I don't know what I'm being asked to do. I don't know what God wants me to do. I feel a little guilty because I can't. And God is saying, dear child, your life is already speaking. Your life is already speaking. You're broadcasting. If you're seeking me, you're broadcasting me and my light and my hope. What are you speaking? Jesus says in Matthew 12, 24, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Again, whatever you speak is what you will, whatever you seek is what you will speak. Eloquence matters not. And final point, we can't begin a sermon series on we speak without probably the most important thing in this. We don't speak of our own accord. If we are not listening to the voice of the good shepherd, first, we have nothing. We're like branches that are disconnected from the vine. Um, we, we will bear no fruit. If we're not listening to the voice of the shepherd, first, we speak emptiness. Jesus himself actually said this about his own ministry, didn't he? John twelve forty nine. For I do not speak on my own. Jesus said this. But the Father who sent me commands me to say all I have spoken. If Jesus defers to the Father, if Jesus empties his own voice so that the Father can inhabit that voice, um, who are we to think we can do otherwise? When we get lost in a million other worries, fears, distractions, and lies, we reattune ourselves to the voice of the Good Shepherd. No peace is possible until this voice is heard. And then, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's no script. There's no playbook. There's no test or special ability. It's just being available to bring heaven to earth, um, offering our bodies as living sacrifices on behalf of God's message. So as we, as we end today, it seems wildly appropriate to not end with our words, but to end with his, just to listen a little bit. So I'm going to pray and offer some silence. And if we could just very directly ask God two questions on, on your behalf. God, what is it that you want me to speak? What, what's the natural way to speak that you've already gifted me with? You've put me in a place that, that can hear these things and are receptive to these. What do you want me to speak? And secondly, to whom do you want me to speak that? Is it a coworker or a spouse or a child or grocery clerk? You know, to whom do you want me to speak that? So Aaron's going to shut up. I'll open us briefly. Uh, let's listen, and then I'll close this in prayer. Father, not just in this moment, but in all moments as we leave this place, uh, continue.